Hey, everybody, it's JT from Grilling at the Green. John Breaker and the great folks at Birdie Ball have a short time offer for all of you listeners. You just go to birdieball.com, and when you place your order, there's a place on that form for a discount code. Use G-A-T-G. That's G-A-T-G. Of course, it stands for Grilling at the Green. And you will get 20% off anything you order from birdieball.com. Now, it's a short-time offer. It expires in about a week, so you want to get on it. Go to birdieball.com, place your order, uh, use the code G-A-T-G, and get 20% off. You heard it here on Grilling at the Green. It's time for Grilling at the Green. Join Jeff Tracy as he explores the golfing lifestyle and tries to keep it in the short grass for the hackers, dew sweepers, and turf spankers. Here's Jeff. Just open up the door and let's take good times in. Hey everybody, welcome to Grilling at the Green. I'm JT here on uh, my base station, KPAM AM860 in Portland. Also on some other affiliates around the country, the Golf News Network. This segment of Grilling at the Green is brought to you in part by Painted Hills Natural Beef, Beef the Way Nature Intended, and also Ben Hogan Golf, home of the Hogan Demo Program. There's no risk or obligation. They'll let you uh, kind of check out some clubs like you would at the library, and uh, you can keep them for a week or two and try them out, and then you can send them back, or you can buy them any way you want to do it. That's BenHoganGolf.com. Well, our friend Jeff Wallach is back. He's got a new book. I, you know, here's the book. By the way, this is a uh, a non for sale copy. That's why it's got that stripe in the middle of it. But it's everyone here is from somewhere else. Our, as I called it, Spencer and Phillips' great adventure continues. So, uh, Jeff, welcome to the show. It's good to see you. Thanks, JT. Good to be with you. So, before we get into the depths of this book. This ongoing story, I don't know if you're going to do a, a third one or not, but this ongoing, what was the emphasis or precipice that you stepped over to create this? I mean, this is this is so fascinating because you include a lot of our, our hometown. We're both from the Portland area, but yet you it goes from here, it goes to New York, it goes to Ireland, you know, it's all over the globe, so to speak. They're down there on the Nile, you know, uh, Jenny was, et cetera, et cetera. How did you come up with all this stuff, man? Yeah, that's a hard question to answer. I mean, the first book resulted from some personal experience. You know, uh, the premise of the book is that these two brothers learn late in life that their supposed father was not who they thought. And that came to me from from a DNA test that I took late in life to learn that I was, in fact, 12% Scottish. So uh-huh. in, the, in the book, the brothers learn that they're both 50% Jewish. They thought they were 100% Jewish. And not to give too much away, but one brother learns that he's, in fact, half Irish. And uh, so the book, uh, go, uh, you know, eventually ends up in Ireland and there are Irish characters. And uh, the other brother finds out what his uh, father was. I'm going to leave that to the imagination so people might pick up and read the book. Sure. Uh, But both of those questions were answered in the first book. I went on to start another project after that was done and it was not quite taking and I realized I wasn't quite done with these characters. So 
in finding out what happened to them next going forward, I also realized that I had to go backward and see what were some of the backstories of the older characters and where they come from and what had formed them because those things were intrinsic to who the, the characters were in the present. So uh, like a lot of people, um, to find out who you are and where you're from often means going back a couple of generations. Sure. Well, one of the things I liked about the first book, Mr. Wizard, and this one, is that uh, I love to read, Jeff, and that's why I interview so many authors at times. But I read it, and sometimes I'd have to stop and think, which you know, maybe that's just me getting older or maybe it's just my natural inability to process things. I don't know, but I would have to stop and think and go, okay, so if this character's father is this person, but this character's part father is this person, how did that work? You know, I, you, you, it, it makes you curious, I guess, in the style and the way you write it and you present the characters. It, it makes you curious because... The other thing I like about it is you have to, you can't skim anything. You have to read virtually every word, which is all very enjoyable. But if you don't, you might miss something. There's little, there's little key components in the, the history of these boys and, and where they are now in this story versus where they came from and all that. But you got to pay attention because if you don't, I found myself one time going back about 20 pages and, and finding something I think I missed. I must have dozed off or something because I read before I go to bed. But it's, it's and it's not saying anything about the, the, the book. I'm just saying that it's such an interwoven story. And then there's golf in there, too, every once in a while. And I go, oh, OK, you know, it, it, that's the way I took it. So. And that's, a, that's a compliment, by the way. It may not seem like golf brought you back, but yeah, there, there's a very complex family tree. Uh, so I'll explain it this way: you have two brothers. Now, two brothers would normally come from the same mother and father. Right. In this case, in the first book, I'm going to tell you this much: um, they have the same mother, but they learn they have two separate fathers. Right. So they're only half brothers now. Genetically speaking, they're half-brothers. So in their travels, one of the brothers falls in love with the half-sister of the other brother. But given the, given the way DNA and family trees work, he's not related to his brother's half-sister. They have no genetic material in common. Right. Um, and so one of their fathers becomes the other one's father-in-law. And so the, the, the flow chart takes, uh, takes a few turns that um, sometimes are difficult to remember. Like, wait a second, isn't this his father? Oh, no, it's his brother's father, father. but it's yeah. not his father. So uh, nothing, nothing genetically inappropriate happens, but uh, it's hard to remember sometimes where, where the family connections are. Well, it, that's what makes it interesting, though, because there's all these twists and turns in the road. And, you know, you you start telling a story and then the, the boys come across a memory of some sort. You know, wasn't Uncle Jerry doing this or something, you know, like that? And at first, 
until you kind of get in the swing of things, like I said, it makes you think. But then as you go along in the book, it's like, well, that makes perfect sense. You know, you, you didn't you didn't have the clues to that until right this second, but right. it makes perfect sense. And I found that fascinating. I right. really uh, my intention was that, uh, you know, there would be a little detective work for a reader to do, which I hope would be part of the fun of the book. And in fact, um, on that subject, the second book, every chapter title in the book is a little mini mystery to be solved by yeah. the reader if if he or she is so inclined. I mean, you don't need to know what that chapter title means to, to understand the book, but if you're intrigued by the, the puzzles and the mysteries in these two books, that's an added level of, oh, what is what does this mean? And some of them are funny and some of them uh, you know, are meant to be more poignant, but if a reader is paying attention and wonders why is this chapter that has nothing to do with something have this chapter title, you can you can figure that out, and then you go, oh, I see. There's something else at another level at work here. Well, I think one of the reasons it hit home with me, Jeff, is that my father and his brother married sisters, which back in the pre-World War II days wasn't that uncommon because you didn't get out. You know what I mean? You didn't you didn't travel. You didn't do that. You pretty much went to work or you worked on the farm or whatever. And all of a sudden, these two redheaded gals show up one day kind of as neighbors. And the next thing you know, my uncle's gotten married. And then they're kind of pressuring my father, who was 27 at the time. And that was old to get married. You know, and so he married my mom, who was the full sister of my aunt. And going through your story, I kept having flashbacks to uh, growing up and getting uh, on with life and hearing more about that situation, which was kind of funny to me. Uh, Some people didn't think it was very funny, but I thought it was pretty funny. Not your book, but my situation. And that's, I think, why I related to your book so much is the fact that I had something like that. Um, They weren't half brothers. They were full brothers and the sisters were full sisters, but it kind of parallels a little bit there. Yeah. I'm trying to picture what that looks like on a family tree and uh, doesn't fork very much, bud. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to take a break and we're going to be back with Jeff Wallach and his new book. Uh, Everyone is from somewhere else following up his other book, Mr. Wizard uh, here on grilling at the green. We'll be back in just a minute. Don't go away. Hi everybody. It's JT. And this is a special version of grilling at the green. Grilling at the Green is brought to you in part by Painted Hills Natural Beef. Beef you can be proud to serve your family and friends. That's Painted Hills Natural Beef. Welcome back to Grilling at the Green here on AM860, The Answer in the Golf News Net. I want to tell you uh, real quickly about, if I can find my crib sheet here uh the refit tournament coming up june 20th at columbia edgewater what they do with the refit organization is they help people with disabilities they reconfigure their homes to take down a bunch of barriers okay like making if they're in a wheelchair they make the doors wider so or make a bigger shower space for them uh put ramps in things like that it's a really good project you can go to um refitportland.org and check it out 
It's going to be at Columbia Edgewater, like I said, on uh, June 20th. There's a nice dinner and awards banquet and stuff afterwards. I'll be there. I'll be playing. So it'll be fun. Maybe we'll drag Jeff out there, too. Who knows? would love that. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. How long does it take something to write like this? And part two of that question, Jeff, is because of the you know, the intrinsic nature of these relationships and the DNA stuff and all that, do you have to write, and you said it in the last segment, at the end of the last segment, do you have to write like a flow chart when you get the idea for the character and say, okay, this, I think this is where he's going to go, or this is where she's going to go. Maybe it doesn't end up there, but that's how you start. Is that, is that how it works or? Well, yes, somewhat like that. I mean, uh, Often I have notes taped to the wall above my desk. For instance, to me, it's even though this is fiction, it's important to be accurate and correct and truthful within the fiction. So, for instance, you need to know the years that, let's say, the parents of a character are born to know that they could have been the right age when the character was born. And then that character if you're talking about him 40 or 50 or 60 something years later, you have to know how old was he in the present? If the present of the book is 2021 or 2022, how old was he? How much older is he than his brother? Uh, Their cousin, you know, there's a scene early on where you find out the cousin is one year younger than one of the characters. So when you uh, show those characters decades later, all of this stuff has to be accurate. So there are, uh, what I fill in more than parts of relationships are timelines of when someone was born, what years they were in college, when did they get married? Um, if if the, the mother in the first book has two kids, you know, what were the years that those kids were born and then working eight or nine months backwards, when would they have needed to have been conceived? And so where were the fathers? at the time of conception if they were not in the same place as the mother right. something's wrong and you got to go back and unspool a few things uh that's a lot of work <laughs> a lot of work uh it's fun work it's it's like a treasure hunt or you know you watch a cop show and they've got the boards with the photos and the right and the, string between them and the pins and the map and all that kind of stuff. So that's a lot of what a novelist does in, in building the story and the structure of a book. Before Mr. Wizard and um, everyone is from somewhere else, were your other books that you've written along these lines? Because I just met you a couple of years ago. That's so. right. Uh, well, I, I published five previous books, but they were all nonfiction. Four of them were about golf. Yeah. Um, so my first book came out in 1996 called Beyond the Fairway. That was a sort of a um, Zen golf book before that was really as popular as it became. Um, but uh, I, I wrote fiction on the side most of my career as a journalist. And then I was lucky enough in my 50s to, uh, well, you could say either I retired from journalism or journalism retired from me since I used to be a print magazine writer and we know what happened to that industry. Um, So I got a chance to turn back to the thing that I had hoped to do when I started, which was write fiction. 
I ought to hook you and Gary Van Sickle up. Gary's on the show frequently, and he's a friend. And he always manages to get in that dig that newspapers and magazines are pretty much dead. You know, he, he comes yeah. off at it like that. But now after 20 years or whatever it's been, he's back working for Sports Illustrated in a digital sense. Yeah. But, but he's very adamant about today isn't like the good old days, you know. Well, there were there were a group of us who were lucky enough over the past uh you know three or four decades to have been print magazine writers yeah and it was a great run and it, it was a time in which if you were a writer you needed credentials you needed experience and editors were the gatekeepers of content so if you were reading something in a magazine in the old days, it had been vetted. You knew that the writer knew what he was talking about, that he was right. a good writer. Right. In the internet era, anyone, you know, living in their parents' basement with <laughs> the tanks and the shag carpet is now a, a journalist or an influencer. And, and there are no gatekeepers to that. And so those of us who, who were old school, uh, you know, were hurt badly by the sudden influx of content that had no vetting. I, I really don't like that name of influencer because it, it doesn't have anything to do with good journalism. You know, it doesn't have anything to do with actually good writing in my view. It's just spew it out there. So, okay, I'm done with my rant, but oh, that wasn't bad at all. I mean, I could go on for two hours. On it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's tough. And Sometimes, I don't know about you, but sometimes, and, and I'm kind of like a sponge for everything, and I, I'll, I'll read something or I'll watch a video clip, somebody going off on something, and I'm like, uh, that's not very good. First of all, it's not, it's not factual, it's not truthful, but secondly, it's not even presented very well. So there you go. That, I'm showing my age, I'm afraid. Yeah, but. Well, I'll say one more thing about influencers and then I'll shut up because they're more powerful than we are now. But um, their uh, content is more about themselves yes. in almost all cases than it is about any other subject. And so I'm more interested in a, a good researcher and journalist Um quoting sources and introducing me to characters than I am seeing one more photo of a beautiful woman with a clam linguine on the plate in front of her. And then another photo of her with her dessert. And, you know, I, I think we've, uh, we've suffered from the content that's being brought to us. It, it lacks depth. It's, it's less entertaining and it's less uh, educating. Yeah, it is. Uh, we're going to take a break here on Grilling at the Green. Jeff Wallach and I will be back right after this. Please stay with us. Hey, it's JT, and this part of Grilling at the Green is brought to you in part by Ben Hogan Golf. Check them out online at BenHoganGolf.com. Welcome back to uh, Grilling at the Green here. I'm JT, and today we're talking with Jeff Wallach and his new book, Everywhere, Everyone is from Somewhere Else. Um, you wrote about golf in your quote-unquote journalism profession, and I see how you always, and I appreciate it, that you weave it into these stories with these two guys. So who's the better golfer, really, between Philip and Spencer? <laughs> 
That's a really good question. Well, the way I would describe it is Philip is a technician. And Spencer is an instinct player. Okay. So I would guess that if they were having a match in the U.S., Philip, who hits the ball high and straight, would probably prevail. But if they were playing on a windblown Lynx course in Scotland, where you had to make some things up based on the conditions that Spencer would prevail. There you go. There you go. Um, I like also, Jeff, how you tie in. We're both Portland guys. Um, and you always manage to almost actually give the fill, uh, the uh, physical address of certain things here in Oregon. And I like that because, um, well, I'm, uh, you know, I like our state and stuff, and and I just think that that's so cool that Oregon, and and especially the Portland area and some of the coast and central Oregon get uh, some good ink, so so to speak. Yeah, it's uh, it's fun for me to be able to weave in some of the stuff that I know well from living here, and you know, there are real places, restaurants, and the library, and parks and a cemetery that's in my neighborhood in Southeast Portland that are actual places that I actually go to that the characters experience. And that's really fun. Yeah. Yeah. Cause a lot of times when you read a novel, it's someplace that sometimes doesn't even really exist. You know, the name might be there, but when they get down to the point of landmarks, if you will, um, that that's something that I, because I've been fairly well-traveled in my life, I'm familiar with a lot of places. And you go, well, that's not really there, you know? And yeah, so in fact, that's one of the things I talk about when I give presentations to, I've been doing genealogical groups and, and golf club memberships, et cetera. And I talk about the difference between journalism and fiction. And there were places in this book where, for example, the golf town that the father turns out to live in in ireland um i made that place up because for my purposes i didn't know even though i've been to a lot of the famous golf towns in ireland and played the courses and been in the clubhouse my memory of them was not reliable enough for me to describe things accurately so it was easier to make up a place that was based on things i've experienced but I didn't have to defend it in case anyone says, well, that's that's not what uh, that's not what the third hole at Valley Bunyan looks like. Well, right. it doesn't have to be because it's not a real golf course, whereas the things in Portland, um, I know them well enough that I could describe them as the things they actually are. Sure. And I, I do like the character, the without giving it away, the Irish father, if can I say it that way? Sure. <laughs> I like him. He's my kind of guy. You know, he, he he's my kind of guy. He was uh, pretty straightforward in life and, and had a lot of fun and enjoyed his time walking around on the planet. So I, yeah. I if hopefully that hooks somebody else in to to want to find out about that character. Yeah, you know, I hope so, too. And he's a he's a fine golf professional and teacher, even yeah. though his methods are you know, somewhat original. Yeah. And uh, always in your books, there's this thing to discover. Maybe that's not the best way to describe it, but, you know, 
some of the titles kind of lend you to that and the chapters and stuff. But this this item and the and the guys don't know if it's a physical item or if it's uh, a location or whatever. And that always comes in towards the end and they finally figure it out. But when you, when you are writing, do you design it so that that right at the end, they find it? You know what I mean? I mean, is it all predestined? Um, Well, I think what I do is I post the question without knowing the answer myself. Okay. And part of the journey of writing the books is to answer the question. And, and sometimes it, some of the questions are answered mid-stride, and some of them are answered at the end of the book. But, yeah. But, but for me, the, the fun of writing and also the fun of reading when I read a book is, you know, I, I want a mystery unveiled. I want something revealed to me, whether it comes early or late. Um, and the two, so the two brothers have a conversation in the second book where they're talking about how their mother set up treasure hunts and scavenger hunts and puzzles and all these things for her. Right. And they talk about, well, why, why are these things so important? And one of the brothers posits that the reason we love mysteries that can be solved is because the biggest mystery for all of us as humans on the planet is not answered. And that is what happens to us after we leave here. Right. I don't mean leave this desk. I mean, yeah, this corporeal, uh, uh, you know, arrangement where we're bodies on Earth. And so we solve smaller puzzles because the answer to the big puzzle is not really available to us. Right. But I think Jenny probably had her own thoughts on that deep, deep inside. She, yes, I think she did, especially having been a student of Egyptology early in her life and right. pyramids and what, what the Egyptians believed in. She's got some thoughts on that. Was that character developed off a particular person or a group of people in your life? Or she's one of the most fascinating creatures in the book, books, yeah. plural. I, I love that character. And that's why the second book was so fun for me to go back and find out a little bit about you know, where she came from. Right. Um, So the character herself is completely invented, but she happens to share some history with my own mother who, who grew up in Brooklyn down the street from the Brooklyn museum, which houses one of the world's great Egyptology collections. Right. So while the character is in no way my mother, and in fact, in many ways is opposite my mother, they uh, they had some of the same experiences. I met a few like Jenny in my life, in my travels. Always interesting and always fun, too. But yeah. they very, very interesting. Do you have anybody in your extended family that reads your books and go, hey, Jeff, I know you wrote that about me? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Well, uh, uh, a good story. When I wrote the first draft of Mr. Wizard, you know, you write fiction your whole life. and I've published short stories in journals, but nothing nothing that was read by a wide audience. And so when I started Mr. Wizard, two brothers growing up on Long Island in the 70s, I grew up on Long Island in the 70s and I had a brother. So just for the sake of placement, I named the brother with the name that my brother has. Um, And then I finished the book and started 
trying to market it. And when I found out it was going to be published, I thought, maybe this isn't the best idea. Uh, so I called my brother and I said, hey, this book is going to come out in a couple of months. I thought maybe I should have you read it before it's published. And he thought, oh, my God, that that character is me. And I'm like, no, it's not you. It's not at all like you. It's very different from you. He's like, but but this happened and this happened and this happened. And I said, well, yeah, I stole some things. From <laughs> uh, and I stole some things from me and I made some things up. So we had to have an intervention where his wife read the book and she took my side, thankfully, and said, no, this character isn't you. And he wasn't comfortable with it. So our agreement was that I would change the name of the character and it wouldn't be his name. Got and it. He was more comfortable with it being a fictitious character when it didn't have his name. <laughs> well, some people are a little sensitive about things, Jeff. Yeah, absolutely. You know? uh, we all have the ability to kind of read ourselves into characters at times, I think, whether it's in books or movies or something, you go, yeah, I would do that. Yeah, I would do that. You know, something like that. Um, we're going to take another break here on grilling at the green, <clears throat> excuse me, but I do want to thank the folks at Painted Hills Natural Beef, beef the way nature intended. Great products. You can go online, find out a location near you where it's available. If not, go to their website, PaintedHillsNaturalBeef.com. They actually have a uh, uh, online program for people. <clears throat> and also Ben Hogan Golf Tour Quality Clubs at factory direct prices. That's BenHoganGolf.com. Jeff Wallach and I will be back in just a moment talking about his new book, Every, Everyone is from Somewhere Else, right after this. Don't go away. Hi, everybody. It's JT, and this is a special version of Grilling at the Green. Grilling at the Green is brought to you in part by Painted Hills Natural Beef, beef you can be proud to serve your family and friends. That's Painted Hills Natural Beef. Welcome back to Grilling at the Green. Um, if you'd like to contact us, it's really easy. Just go to grillingatthegreen.net and uh, you can contact us through there. It's pretty simple. And speaking of simple things, but great things, here's Bruce Furman with our golf tip of the week. Hi, this is Bruce Furman. I'm the director of instruction out at Langdon Farms. And today's tip, I'm going to talk a little bit on how to start your backswing. Uh, a lot of people ask me that and there's different ways to of doing it, but when you study swings, and I have a um, computer program, and I have uh, lots of tour pro swings that I've studied over the years, and a lot of my, I film myself, believe it or not, down at different tournaments, and when you look at it and you really study it closely, you'll see that most tour pros actually have a subtle move off the ball, meaning if you're right-handed, you're moving to the right, and believe it or not, when you look at it, you know, with a computer program, you'll see that they actually start that move a lot of times before they even move the club. So they, they move the club with that subtle move to the right, and then the coil, the turn begins as they move to the right, and that left shoulder then will go under their chin, behind the ball, their back will be to the target, they'll, they'll put weight into their right leg, 75 or so, that right hip will go back, and they'll, they'll load up that right leg, their left knee should go out toward the ball. So when you start your swing, that little subtle move to the right, and then feel that coil into your back leg. That'll help you get the club started in a, in a tour pro 
uh, way and, and you'll play much better rather than just keeping your, your body still and pulling the club back like a lot of people do. That's not the best way to do it. So I hope that helps you. Thank you, Bruce. We appreciate that. Folks, if you want to find out more about Bruce Furman, just go to Langdon Farms website, which is langdonfarms.com, and uh, click on instruction. Bruce is the director of instruction down at Langdon Farms, and uh, you can figure out how to get a lesson with him or one of his mini clinics. It's a lot of fun. Talking with Jeff Wallach today. Jeff's going to stick around for the after hours, too. What was your biggest challenge writing this book, Jeff? Well, that's a great question. Um, I think the fact that this book is both a prequel and a sequel to the first book, um, the structuring of it was, you know, kind of hard to figure out. How do I go forward and backward in the same book? What does that look like structurally? And, and can I create this structure where it's invisible, like the framing of a house is no longer visible once once you complete the architecture and put the siding on and, and uh, sheetrock the walls inside. But that thing needs to be in there to hold up the building. So could right. I do that without it sticking out where a reader would go, oh, yeah, I can see through this to how it was built? Well, and also a little, well, I don't want to say tip, but a little nuance there is when you're remodeling buildings you never are sure what you might find in the walls how's that that's uh yeah that's a good segue because uh i mean my my other career uh in portland has been renovating old houses and we've certainly found a few things in the walls when you tear down the lath and plaster that was put up in you know 1910 workers sometimes stuck little artifacts in there. And, uh, and so one of the characters in the second book is renovating a house in Portland. And he finds a letter that was buried in the walls a hundred years ago. And that becomes somewhat of an obsession for him in the book. Yeah, it does. Speaking of that, I saw a thing online the other day where this couple was uh, renovating a house. Uh, and this was definitely the guy because it was his sense of humor. He went out and bought a plastic skeleton and put it in the in a, a dead space, if you will. No pun intended. And then they put the countertop on top of it. He goes, well, someday somebody's going to tear this out and I want him to find something that make him curious. So he, he bought a Halloween skeleton and stuck it in there. I thought that was quite clever myself. I, think I may steal that for a future book. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Are you going to bring Philip and Spencer back uh, in volume three ever? Well, I'm I'm at work on something else right now. Okay. Uh, that doesn't involve them. That's actually a very different kind of novel. But I suspect that I have one more in me, um, but it's going to be later in their lives, so I have to wait for them to get a little older. I got it. I got it. Jeff Wallach, a friend of the show. Uh, Jeff and I have some mutual friends we're going to talk about in After Hours. His new book, Everyone is from Somewhere Else, follows up. That's following his Mr. Wizard book. Thank you, bud, for being on the show today. Always a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. We'll be back next week uh, with another edition of Grilling at the Green here on AM860, The Answer. KSEY. 
down in Texas, uh, KFAQ in Tulsa, and a bunch of them. Anyway, we'll be back, and uh, everybody go out, hit some golf balls, have a good time. We'll see you next week. Grilling at the Green is produced by JTSD Productions, LLC, in association with Salem Media Group, all rights reserved.